we're going we're gonna to transition, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 73, Psalm 73 this morning. And you may have come expecting that we were going to get back into the book of Exodus as we had forecasted last week. Well, uh, amidst COVID times, things change. And so uh, this week, actually, um, Rita Santini ended up coming down with COVID. And so the Santini crew is quarantined right now. And so they're all doing well. Aaron said even Rita's feeling a lot better. Nobody else seems to be showing any symptoms. So they're doing well, but they're quarantining in the meantime. And so uh, I got kind of called up uh, out of reserves. And uh, Friday, I think I found out that uh, I got to preach today. So uh, anyway, so I looked back and uh, tried to dust off an, an older uh, sermon, and uh, I think it was about nine years ago that I first kind of preached this passage uh, here at the crossing, and so uh, it had a lot of dust on it and needed uh, a, lot of, a lot of reworking. But uh, for me this week, it was, uh, this weekend, it was, it was just a, a real blessing to me to look back into this, into this psalm. It really spoke to me. I think it's been, uh, you know, I'm hesitant to call any, any psalm or anything my favorite. I think I got, we, we all got lots of favorites depending on the time and season of life. But uh, this psalm has been one that I've, I've often gone back to as, as words of encouragement. Um, I love the honesty of the psalm. And so uh, I, I pray that this can be a, a, a blessing to us together and encouragement to us as we enter into it. So uh, we are going to read the entirety of the, of the psalm. And I, I told the first service, I was, I was kind of tempted just to read the, the psalm go to communion and send you on your way and say, hey, leave from here and just, just meditate on this. You don't necessarily need me to sit here and, and talk about it for 30 minutes or whatever. Like, like you, you may need to just leave and just, just, just let these words rest on your heart. Um, and they may they do far more, but uh, it's not my job, uh, or my job is to, to, to try to preach this. So we're going to spend some time diving into this psalm. But I encourage you to, this week, let this, this psalm be something that you can meditate on, that you can look to as, as, a, as words of encouragement and challenge for your own heart and life. So I invite you to stand together as we give just attention to the reading of God's Word here in Psalm 73. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled... My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakens. 
O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the honesty of this psalmist. We recognize our, our tendency to, to question and doubt, and we ask that you would hold us steady. Pray that you would use uh, this time to stir in us just a, a, a fresh vision to know you, to love you. Pray that you would grab a hold of our hearts in a fresh way. We do lift up for you the Santini family, for Rita, and others who may be struggling with the sickness that has plagued so many. We ask that you would bring healing and uh, restoration to them. And I just, just pray that this morning, as we sit under your word, that we would submit our lives to you, first and foremost, that we would recognize your lordship over all things. And we are thankful that we can face every day because our Savior lives, is risen, and so we hope in the gospel this morning we declare our dependence on you. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You can have a seat. Let me ask you as we start here, are there, are there ever times that you think something, you maybe have an opinion, that you feel like you can't really voice out loud because it's not really popular? It goes against popular opinion. I'm not necessarily talking about your political views necessarily, but kind of the simple things. Like for instance, I think that Chick-fil-A is highly overrated. Now, I know people love their Chick-fil-A. They love their Chick-fil-A. What was it? Daniel or Chad call it gospel chicken sometimes. I, don't, I still don't know why. But uh, anyway, it's, it's fine. I got nothing against Chick-fil-A, but uh, it's certainly, like, can we agree that it doesn't warrant, like, like, lining cars all the way up on College Avenue, like, every day, like, almost causing accidents? Can we, can we admit that? So, but I think Chick-fil-A is overrated, not the most popular opinion. Another, another, another thing is, uh, you know the Star Wars prequels, you know, the ones that came out a long time ago, episode one, two, and three? They're not that bad. Now, I know those movies get a ton of hate, and they like ruined and destroyed the whole like Star Wars deal, but I, they're not that bad. You know, certainly we could change some things, we could get rid of Jar Jar and, and maybe a new actor for Anakin, but overall I had a really good storyline, some great epic uh, lightsaber scenes, so they're not that bad. Um, then what if, I, what if I told you that I am actually a huge fan of the band Nickelback? I'm actually totally joking with you on that one. I'm joking. I, uh, I, I, if you know me, I'm not really a music guy, so I don't really have much of an opinion, but I, I just know that everybody seems to hate Nickelback. And so uh, if, if you're a Nickelback fan, you might want to play that one close to the vest. So, uh, 
well, there's things like that, that that we feel like maybe sometimes we can't say out loud. And I, I think what we see in this psalm is, is, is a follower of God who begins to share some things that, that you may sit back and say, oh, I don't know if you're supposed to say that in church. I don't know if you're supposed to have those thoughts and those feelings. And I think sometimes maybe all of us can feel like that. You see, he begins by stating what is, for all intents and purposes, the most basic of Christian beliefs. He says, truly God is good to Israel. He's good to His people, to those who are pure in heart. But then he quickly kind of begins to reveal that for him, he hasn't always been certain of that. He begins to kind of question, is he? Is he good? And what, what we see here in this psalm is, is not a, a non-believer crying out these things, but this is actually Asaph, who we know from other passages in the Old Testament, that this was actually a, for lack of a better word, a worship leader in Israel. He was appointed as a singer in the temple, and he, he, he led God's people in worship, and from writing the psalms, we, we, he, he holds this position he should be one who is confident in his faith, who, who leads others to declare the truths about God. And yet in this psalm, we see him expressing some honesty, and he openly confesses that there's been times where he has struggled to reconcile what he sees in the world with what he believes in his head to be true about God. Do we always believe in God's goodness? Asaph wasn't always sure of this. And he shares this, this time when he struggled to believe it. And I think verse 1, he actually is starting with what is ultimately his conclusion through this whole experience. He starts with what he's come to actually believe and declare, but then he says, hey, let me explain to you how I struggled and how I've gotten here. And so I think the psalm flows through these kind of three movements. The first that we'll look at is this honest struggle. And then the second point that he'll make is that he shares this hopeless moment. And then he will conclude with what I can, what I call the, this firm resolution. So we see an honest struggle, we see a hopeless moment, and then we see this firm resolution that he arrives at. So he begins, says, surely God is good says, but for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet almost slipped. He describes his spiritual journey in terms of a, a hike or, or, or climbing up a slope. And he figuratively says that, that on this journey of faith, he hit this point where his feet stumbled, where, where he almost lost his footing and fell off the path. Don't you love the honesty of this psalm, where the writer openly confesses his struggle to believe, his doubts about God? It's not an accident that this made it into the Scriptures, but maybe sometimes you resonate with these things, but not sure where or with whom you can share those things. And so maybe you find yourself there now, maybe not fully doubting everything about God, but maybe looking out into the world and just questioning, where is God in all this? Why is He allowing things to, to happen in this way? 
Why do things look like this right now? Maybe for others, there's maybe questions that feel so big and, and, and overwhelming that you, you just can't seem to find answers for, and it's left you feeling rather uncertain. Maybe the, the actual circumstances of your life are so trying and so difficult that you feel that the, the, the ground of your faith that you're trying to hold on to is just like shale that's crumbling and slipping out from under you. You don't know if you're going to be able to stay on course. But if you find yourself somewhere in that realm of, of doubt that I think, for honest, comes upon us even as committed followers of Jesus, a psalm like this at least tells us that we're not alone. And I love uh, what uh, theologian Tim Mackey says about the psalm, where he says this. He says that in this psalm we see that man's words of doubting God have become God's word to a doubting people. Man's words of doubting God have become God's word to a doubting people. And so we can, we can approach this text with honesty to, to seek answers. And I love that about this, the honest struggle that he has. But where is it sourced? In, in verse 3, he, he, he declares... He almost fell off and he almost struggled because he was envious of the arrogant, the prideful. And he said what, what caused this envy and jealousy to arise in him was that he looked out and he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looks out to those around him and those who he would place in a category of the wicked, he sees prospering, doing quite well. The word he uses here is actually the word that many of us, one of the few you know, Hebrew words that we might know is shalom. This idea of, of peace and prosperity. That which ultimately God promises to bring into the world. He attributes that as being found by those far from God. So he sees things that stir up this jealousy and this discontentment in his heart. And he's confronted with this doubt. Because his experience of things begins to kind of cause his heart to question what, it, what his mind believes. And so then he goes on and he explains to us in verses 4 through 12 how the wicked prosper. He unpacks to us what, what, what he continues to see. He says in verse 4, they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. Wouldn't that be nice? To, have, to be able to be fat and sleek. And that, that's kind of what the ESV uh, translates this as. But I, I think what it's getting at is that, that they're, they're well-fed, they have everything that they want, and they're, they're also well-off. They're, they're, they're healthy and strong. So they don't seem to have the, any physical problems. In verse 5, they don't seem to be struck with the common burdens of life that maybe you feel on a daily basis. In verse 6, he says that they display their pride like a necklace around their neck. You know, we all can admit that, you know, we're all proud to one degree or another, but we all know those certain people who, who just wear their arrogance out there. It's just evident. And he describes this as, as someone putting pride on as a necklace. They want everybody to see and, and believe in how great they are. Because that they're, they're characterized by, by violence. They will use any means of oppression and hurting others to get what they want for themselves. And Asaph sees people like this 
getting away with it. Verse 7 says that they continually come up with new ways to commit evil. In verse 8, he describes them as just arrogant scoffers. They make fun of others, and they put others down to make themselves look better. They defy God directly, and they act as if they ultimately rule the world. What does God know? Does the Most High even, even have any understanding? I think we all know many in our society and world who, who take that approach. Verse 10, a somewhat confusing verse to understand, but I think it's, it's getting at this, this idea that they actually gather a following of others who want to be like them. So even, even potentially believers that, that are turned aside and follow after them because it looks so appealing. Seems like that's the path to success. And they question God. They question His understanding. And so certainly, as, as we read this list and this description, we recognize that Asaph is speaking hyperbolically to some degree. He's describing what, what seems to be true generally from his perspective as he looks out. And so his ultimate conclusion is found in verse 12 where he says this. He says, these are the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase in riches. So basically his conclusion is these people have no fear of God. They live carefree and they get everything that they want. Now this, this, this may not be a true reality, but this is kind of how Asaph begins to, to see it in these black and white categories as, as though all the wicked prosper and the righteous are the ones who suffer. And isn't it interesting how when, when, when we, like Asaph, begin to kind of believe a certain narrative that may be untrue, we'll actually kind of skew the truth and, and kind of push everything else out to kind of reinforce that, that narrative that, that we see? And we start to see things only through a certain lens. We lock in on that and we only focus on that what we see. And Asaph sees all these people who he sees as having no respect or no recognition of God just doing just fine. And he looks at them and then he compares them to himself. And so he, he has this problem that he has. Where he's ultimately like, if God is actually in control then he will, he will most certainly punish the wicked and reward the righteous. His expectation is that evil will be judged and good is honored. And we, we kind of expect that sometime too, right? We, we expect that those who don't have a relationship with God to kind of hate their lives and to, to be struggling and, and, and living in, in misery, right? And the, the, the Christians just have this, this joy and just this great life. And that's not always true to what we see, right? It sure seems like people out there who have no regard for God live completely abandoned to whatever they want, seem to be enjoying life and getting along just fine. And sometimes we may say, well, you know, deep down they're really struggling, but boy, from our perspective, it sure seems like they're getting away with it. So who is it that you would look at and, and kind of view in, in those categories you know, I think we could, we could look at the corrupt politicians. We could, we could look at the athletes who get away with, with domestic violence and still succeed with, with million-dollar contracts. We can look at celebrities who just, you know, make it, you know, their goal to kind of criticize Christianity or anything and, and yet are just, you know, praised by everyone. 
Maybe it's just people in your own circle in life. Maybe it's even other Christians who just don't seem to be as serious about their faith as you, but just seem to get everything they want. Things work out well for them. And we kind of are trying to figure out what are the scales here that, that God's using with all this. Maybe you look out into our world and it just seems like evil is winning, is succeeding. Whether it's when you, when you see kind of just this whole moral revolution that's been sweeping up our, our whole society in the last number of years, you know, to, to the point where, where there's, there's just so much confusion over, over how to even distinguish between a man and a woman and God's design for, for humanity and, and marriage and all those things, and, and you see all, all, all of that kind of collapsing away from God's purposes and design, and that's just like, what, what is going on? Why is this happening? Maybe it's just discouraging to you to, to know where is God in all of that. When the church and Christianity is being pushed further and further to the margins of society, it's harder and harder to actually live out any kind of honest faith because of what you'll be labeled. Maybe it just seems like evil's winning. It's taking over. And where is God? Do you ever have those questions and those doubts that rise up? Asaph shares these things for us. And then he, he presents to us this point where he gets to this hopeless moment in verse 13, where he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean, have washed my hands in innocence, all the day long, though I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So he declares that he cries out and says, Righteous living has all been in vain. He cries out that he's, he's innocent of the crimes and the blasphemies of all these people, and yet they seem like they're doing better off than he is. And this just isn't right in his mind. He can't reconcile this. And he's not upset merely just that, you know, ungodly people maybe are, are doing well, but he's actually further frustrated by the fact that it's the righteous who are suffering. He's tried to do his part. He's tried to remain faithful to God, and yet... His days look like heartache, and every morning he wakes up to new struggles. And so he, it's almost to where he gets to this point where he sees no return on his investment. He has, he has done what he can do to, to try to remain faithful, and he doesn't see God kind of responding to that in the way that he would hope, the way that he would expect and I think this thinking can easily creep into our own hearts and lives where, where we start to think that God owes us for stuff because of what we've done for Him. And then we can, can kind of start to shift and get upset or, or bittered toward God when He doesn't give us things that He actually never promised us, but things that we've created as things that we expect from Him. And I love even his honesty in verse 15 where he says, as the ESV says, if I had said, I will speak thus, he's basically saying, if I had said, spoken like this, I would have be, betrayed the generation of your children. I would have, I would have you know, hindered other followers of, of God. He's basically saying, like, I, I'm not even supposed to say these things because I don't want to hurt other people's faith or anything, but, but he cries out in his honesty. I'm not supposed to say this, but this is what I'm feeling, what he's struggling with. And in verse 16, 
He declares this, when I thought how to understand this, when I, when I put my mind to the task of trying to figure it out and make sense of it, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It was exhausting. I couldn't figure it out. So what does he do? He's at this point of hopelessness. doesn't seem like God is actually coming through and, and displaying his goodness to him. All the wicked are just getting away with everything. They're succeeding. Everything's going well. And the faithful are just sitting here suffering and struggling. And I think we're all confronted with this question at some point or another of like, what do we do with that in that moment, with those struggles? How will we respond to those seeming injustices that we see? And I think ultimately we'll either probably turn from God and, and, and stop believing His promises, and we'll begin to trust our own instincts about life more than the instruction that God gives us. Or, we will press into God and we will seek for understanding. And we see this, this crucial moment in the psalm where it takes this dramatic shift in verse 17 and actually starts him down this point of this firm resolution. And in verse 17, I love how it shifts. He says, It seemed to me a wearisome task to make sense of this. He said, Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until he went into God's presence to, to seek God. And this place of understanding is found in God's presence, not out on his own, figuring it out in his own head. And ultimately, literally, Asaph I think, goes to the temple. And he doesn't tell us specifically what it was that spoke to him there in that moment. But I think we, we just understand generally as he enters into the temple, he's connecting himself with a community of faith. And ultimately, it's a place in which he can worship God. That is where the worship of Yahweh was, was, was most specifically seen. And I think what Asaph is, is, is encouraging us is that sometimes in our doubt... We're not just going to figure it out on our own in our own head. But I think in our darkest hours, we often need to simply worship our way through difficult times. And we need to, we need to connect ourselves with a community of faith who can, who can point us in the right direction, who can encourage us, who can speak truth into our heart, into our lives in those moments. I think we should have a place to honestly ask those questions, honestly share those struggles. I think we, we need each other. This is why this past year has been such a challenge in so many ways of, of being separate or, or, or apart or different services, and, and we long to just come together to worship because there's something powerful that happens when we enter together corporately and worship to God. And why many, if I think in, in a good way, have been frustrated through so many of these things and the limitations. And, and yet I think we, we have, as a body, and I commend you for, for fighting hard to, to stay connected in life group and in coming together. Because we need the regular rhythm of this just to, just to, to speak to our hearts. Sometimes these things aren't things we can just figure out with our own intellect. But we need the Spirit of God to actually work in us through the means that God has given us. And I think as, as pastors, we've seen this over the years so many times where, where someone begins to doubt and question and, and maybe they don't know where to share that or how to, how to, how to be honest about it. And then they, they, they might get kind of frustrated at the church or at God and then they just pull themselves back and they start isolating from that. 
And oftentimes it leads further and further away, and, and we've seen many who have ultimately just walked away from it, trying to figure it out on their own. And on the other side, I've seen others who have, who have taken that challenge of doubt and pressed in to God, pressed into the, the people of God, into His Word, even amidst the questions that they had, and I think they've seen God meet them in that. We need each other to hold us. We need God through the means that He has given to us, His people, and the worship of Him to draw our hearts that easily wander away. And we see Asaph press into that in this moment. And when he entered into the worship of God in this context of the, of the community of faith, he began to have this change of perspective, this shift that took place. In verses 18 to 20, he begins to realize his wrong thinking. He says, It was then, when, when I was before God and understanding things differently, that I discerned their end, the end of the wicked. That actually, God, He sets them in slippery places. They're, they're, they're not as successful as they appear. In the end, it will not work out well for them. He begins to see his own heart of, of recognizing the, the bitterness that, that rose up within him towards God, and that ultimately he was just acting like a, what he calls a brute beast in verse 22. He was, he was just living and responding out of his animalistic instinct. Our instincts are not trustworthy. And so he realizes his wrong thinking that he was looking on the wrong things and his focus became far too narrow. One writer observed about this psalm, kind of the shift that takes place through the pronouns that he uses. He starts in, in verses kind of four through nine, just, just focusing on they. He says, they, 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 out there, all, the, all, all, all those other people. And he makes that comparison with his own life, and he's in this struggle, but then he shifts and he begins to focus on the you, namely God, here in the middle section. He says, you will do this, you are there, Lord. And he ultimately connects himself, the I, with that you. He says, I am with you. You hold my hand. And he has this, this shift in the, in the psalm. And I think that that pictures what, what we so often do is we look out there and we just say, they, 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 what's going on there? And we make that comparison rather than just actually turning our, our, our gaze and look on, on God, trying to get a perspective from him. Because if you notice, nothing actually changed in his circumstances. There wasn't some like radical life change or, you know, he didn't see some major vindication and kind of judgment fall on all these people. Or he's like, ah, finally they got theirs. Like nothing actually like changed. But his perspective shifted and that, to that totally transformed his entire outlook on everything. Um, I've seen these artistic structures sometimes that uh, are kind of a, an illusion of sorts. I've seen one that uh, I think it's made, like maybe made of wires or something where it kind of, as you, as you stand back and look at it on one side, as these wires come together, you know, it, it forms the image of, I think this one I saw was like these two giraffes with their heads crossed. And then as you like shift and rotate around the piece, you uh, begin to see the thing change and then from a different angle it actually displays like an elephant. And I saw this other, this other artwork that... Uh, it's kind of this illusion where if you look at it kind of just from the side, it looks like all these just round black dots just hanging on strings, just kind of this, this mess and chaos of just black dots hanging there. 
But then as you, as you kind of maybe shift around and then the camera angle changes and, and you begin to look on it head on, it actually, all those dots come together and form this perfect image of a human eye, this fascinating artwork that, that people have created. And I think that so clearly illustrates like our perspective matters. And sometimes we have such a limited perspective that we look at, but we assess things based on our viewpoint. And sometimes God is, is just wanting us to kind of shift and change our perspective a little bit, to recognize He sees things differently. And we can't judge Him based on our perspective, but we need to invite Him to, to help us see things from His point of view. And he realizes his wrong thinking. He begins to expand his vision to see kind of an eternal outlook on things. That he says, in the end, God has things under control. They're not just getting away with it. Sometimes uh, in our house with our four boys, uh, the older boys often accuse uh, us of, of letting the younger kids get away with things. There's kind of that, that debate. And over Christmas, this happened very clearly. Christmas Day, you know, in their stockings and everything, they got a whole bunch of different candy. And so uh, they had their candy in different places or whatever. And uh, our youngest son, Brecken, who's three, um, because all the candy was just everywhere, throughout the day, he just kept, like, finding a little corner of the house and just eating, like, all the candy. And he was, like, eating his brother's candy and all this stuff. And, like, we were just kind of relaxing and not paying much attention. His brother's like, he ate all my candy, and he's getting away. Like, and we're, we, like, didn't really punish him for it or anything. We just kind of like, it's fine. It'll be okay. But uh, they, they, they were like, this injustice, because Brecken's just getting away with all of this. Like, aren't you going to do anything about it, Mom? You've got to replace my candy. Like, it was just this, this frustration that occurred. And God's not like, just like a lazy parent who's sitting back like, oh, well, I guess they got away with that. Oh, I missed that one. Oh, yeah, I guess they got into the candy. Oh, well, I guess they can just enjoy that. Like, like God's not sitting there like that. Like, like he knows what's going on. He, he sees it. It's, it's actually his mercy that doesn't just bring his judgment on all of us. And so... In this, as he, as he brings his viewpoint out, Asaph sees that, that God has it under control. Like in the end, it's not going to end well for them. The satisfaction and the, 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 the pleasures that, that the wicked are, are, are finding are, are temporary. They're fleeting. And there's something greater that, that God wants to draw Asaph to come and understand. And so Asaph then remembers God's promised faithfulness in verses 23 and 24. The psalmist finds peace in God's guidance and his presence in his life. And it's actually in the moment of his doubt that he begins to realize that God is there with him the entire time. Then in verses 25 to 26, some of these just great words of Scripture for us, we have his repentance of his wrong pursuit. He begins to realize that, that, that his actual desire was misguided. We see in this, in this passage the, the Christian's experience of joy in Christ is far superior to any perceived prosperity that can be found in the world. And I think Asaph begins to see that what he envies in the world, what rose up of jealousy in his heart towards the world, he actually already possessed in God. The envy of the wicked that he had towards them is, is then transformed into this beautiful desire for God alone. And I think when we are tempted to doubt God, maybe because we, we begin to think that, that God is not good because he's withholding something from us 
that he hasn't given us something that we deserve or even just something that we desire. He's, he's holding back on us. Like, how is God good in that? I think it's the, the, the challenge of the Christian life to realize that what we actually want, what we actually desire most is only found in God. And sometimes it's actually God's grace to us to withhold from us things that He knows would actually draw our hearts away from Him. I think sometimes we think God's withholding something from us that, that, that would be good, that we desire, that we deserve. And yet God, from His perspective, is saying, actually, I, I can't give you that because I know that it would, it would draw your heart away from Me. And the greatest thing that I can give to you is Myself. And so that's where Asaph arrives at these words that I think all of us as followers of Jesus probably long to be able to declare in truth, but how many of us can honestly say this is, these verses are actually like true in our own heart? Where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And that's ultimately what God wants us to see. That the greatest desire, the greatest joy that we can found is, is found in, in possessing Him alone. And I think our hearts want that, but, but how many of us can honestly say that? That we, we desire nothing on earth except for God. And He recognizes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you're going to highlight or write down some verses to memorize this week, to put on your wall, to remind yourself this week, those two verses can be a challenge and an encouragement to all of us. But it was through the doubt and through the struggle that was necessary to get him to arrive at that point and that recognition. So Asaph repents of his wrong pursuit and he ultimately ends with this renewed commitment that he finds in verses 27 and 28. Where he ultimately says, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. I don't need to be concerned about them. I don't need to be worried about all that and all that they're getting away with. Like God will take care of that. But as for me, what is good for me is to be near God, to commit myself to God in worship, to recognize that He is always with us. And then he declares, I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And I love how he shifts from the beginning of the psalm of this struggle and doubt against God, things he doesn't even know if he can say, to then at the end, recognizing his ultimate purpose is actually declare the goodness of God. He recognizes that's ultimately what God has, has called him to do is to find his joy and satisfaction and, and delight in God alone and to be able to share that with others. As he says, I will tell of all your works. What a great encouragement to us. The words of a doubting man have become God's word to us, a doubting people. And we, can, we can approach those doubts with, with, with honesty, our struggles, with, with openness, knowing that it doesn't depend on us just to intellectually come up with the, the right statement of faith, to have the right theology in our heads, but it also is God captivating our heart to experience the fullness 
of Him being our only desire. So wherever you're at today, I think this psalm can speak to you. Maybe you're here and you're, you're actually not a believer. You continue to come and maybe search and, and, and struggle to understand, but you, you really doubt whether, whether this God is true. In this is the, the sobering reality that in the, in the end, like, like God will judge those who are far from Him. He extends His mercy to all of us, and He invites us to, to receive Him through faith. And there's the good news that Jesus has come. He has been given in His life, His death, and His resurrection for us so that we can know this God, so that we can have full satisfaction in Him alone. So there's an invitation for you to come. Don't look to what, what may seem like a satisfying life that you're finding on your own. You can find something far better in the relationship of God. For the Christian who's confused, maybe just wondering, struggling to hold on, will you realize that your perspective might be clouded might be looking at things wrongly. We entrust yourself to, to the hard work of committing to God, to His people, to, to regularly just, just crying out in worship to this God to give you a fresh perspective, to shift maybe the envy and bitterness of your heart into a desire for Him alone. For Christians just struggling through difficult times, your circumstances are, are challenging, are gut-wrenching, there's an encouragement here to worship through that difficulty, to seek God's faith. He has not abandoned you. He has not left you. But He holds your right hand. And it's in your moment of doubt that you actually may realize that He's been there with you the entire time. I pray that these words of the psalm can guide us this week into a world that is very confusing right now, into situations that are in many ways cause us to doubt and to question. Let us follow the path of Asaph, and recognize that we can't just look out at them, but we need to look at God and allow Him to, to come and connect ourselves to Him and realize that our deepest desires are already actually offered to us. We actually already possess through what He's done for us. So let's pray to our God today. Father, I thank You for this psalm. This has been a challenge to my own heart and my own soul. We are prone to wander. We are prone to doubt and to question you. So I do pray that you would hold us fast, hold our hearts to you. Let us not be distracted just by the comparison that we so easily fall into with those around us. But let us declare that who have we in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that we desire besides you. Let that be true in our hearts. Lord, let us recognize that our flesh and our heart may fail. We cannot depend on ourselves. But you are our strength. You are our portion together. We declare that together. And we cry out to you. And we ask in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.